the beach. This is Dave O, and I'm sequestered back here in the garden. Just trying to get that subtle hint of autumn coming on today, which pleases me greatly. The squashes are starting to grow. Grass around town is fading. This is all very exciting to me. It's just a tiny bit nippy out tonight, and I'm excited for fall. I like all the randomness of getting up every day, not knowing quite what it's going to be like. It's before the snow, but it's not likely to be sunny either. And you know I'm partial to rainy days with a view and nothing obligatory to do. Hey, so here's what's on tap for today. I'm going to bust out a couple, well, it's a Russian work and a Russian-inspired work. Now what I mean by that is a few years ago, I got interested in Russian literature by reading Tolstoy short stories, Dostoevsky and Boris Pasternak's Dr. Zhivago, which is also a fabulous movie. I really enjoyed the kind of heightened sense of drama, and the, yeah, the prose always kind of has these political underpinnings cloaked up in almost soap opera-like drama in some cases. I especially got curious about the relationship between the French and the Russians, and how the Russians thought French culture had it going on, during the Napoleonic era, things kind of shifted a little bit, and while everyone was all excited about the French at first, well, found out that they had a, had a few surprises themselves that they probably didn't even expect. Anyway, so inspired by Tolstoy's War and Peace and Physiology of War, as well as some of my other favorites, like we've read Thoreau and whatever, I wrote a piece called Letters from Russia last summer. started at Lake Crescent and finished it in Manzanita, Oregon. And I'm going to read the introduction first letter or so from that, and then I'm going to attempt to read some, uh, some of Tolstoy's War and Peace, and I snicker because uh, I, you know, I really struggle with names, and uh, then I'm going to finish it up with some French poetry to kind of give a little bit of a chill to the end. I'm excited too because I found a good copy of Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture, which is a phenomenal piece of music, although Tchaikovsky himself wasn't real impressed and didn't consider it one of his finer works, but it's a great experience if you ever get a chance to go see perform with a good orchestra with cannons, especially outdoors and all that. But first up, Letters from Russia. Letters from Russia by Dave Olson. Note to readers. What follows is a collection of letters, albeit ostensibly, written by Henri Lefleur, a cobbler in the French army during the Russian campaign of 1812, to Jean-Vierre his fiancée in Paris. Henri's 14 letters offer his observations on the physiology of war, as well as discourse and personal sentiments on love, war, society, politics, and meaning of self. The accompanying landscape paintings give a sense of his search for solace and release in the surrounding chaos of war. The letters were sent over an eighth-month period, beginning in Austria and moving through Prussia, Poland, and into Russia, first with battles in Smolensk and Borodino, then fires and pillaging in Moscow, and finally the well-documented November retreat. The final letter in the correspondence was sent on retreat near the Berezin Bridge, at which location during three days much of the remaining French army perished into the icy river while attempting crossing of the bridge. Others were stranded on the Russian side with the pursuing Cossack troops when the retreating French army destroyed the bridge behind them. As it were, the collection of letters, along with a variety of sketches and paintings, was found bound and stored in an attic trunk as per Henri's written request before leaving Moscow. 
There's no further verifiable historical information to confirm Henri's return home, though original folklore contends that he indeed survived and lived a long life in a small village near the sea with his dear Genevieve. April 6, 1812, in camp near Vienna, Austria. Chez Genevieve. I've only been gone for less than two weeks, but already I miss you more than I thought I would after many long months. We can only hope my duty goes quickly, so to return to you soon. For this, we must trust Napoleon's judgment. After the hurried wagon trip, I've met up with my unit in a beautiful part of Austria. I've attempted a sketch to give you a sense of the place. With the high mountain altitude come waves of late blooming wild flowers of every lavender and purple, gold orange and the lovely blue of your eyes, glowing like the patina on copper, soaring peaks frosted with the immaculate sheen of ice. As it is, there's little evidence of recent or impending war. The towns are lively and efficient, and the people cordial considering the manner in which the French arrived. At the camp, there's a methodical, tense routine of preparing equipment and provisions of all manner. You know I do not fit in well with routine and early mornings, but I will make do. As for my unit, I'll be traveling with a supply wagon, along with a few others. A tailor, Maurice, he tends to all uniforms for officers, both mending and outfitting. He somehow doesn't look the part, stout and chubby-fingered. He has a cynical wit and an easy wink. He remembers names and tells stories about fishing and rowboats with his uncle, a preacher in Arles. Besides Maurice is Eugenio, wiry and always smoking. He's also older than most everyone I've seen in camp, and turns out he fought with Italy against Napoleon, but now is constricted as a painter, obliged to produce portraits of corpulent generals and grand scenes of battle. He knows well the history of each campaign and seems unimpressed by the eager anticipation of orders. Everyone assumes we are bound for Russia, combining with the northern troops to form one grand army. This alone should be enough for Russian Tsar Alexander to come to terms, ending this campaign and sending me back to your arms in just a few months of spring and summer. Even if we move into Russia, we will surely be returning well before winter. Such a schedule will give me time to open up a cobbler shop of my own and marry you next spring. I am glad we told your parents of our plans before I left, though they weren't as surprised as, as, as we thought. Of course, send my regards and best wishes to them. But for now, I am bound by the wishes of Napoleon through the orders written for the day. Soldiers never question and maintain a sense of urgency to seize their place in history. This is Napoleon's skill, a genius ability to motivate the troops with promises of glory, the causes of the revolution, importance of spreading French culture and our civil code through a united Europe. I must admit some reservations about the need of bringing Russia into our grand republic, but I will leave such decisions to more seasoned minds. I can only trust the motives are not driven by ego. We can only hope for sound judgment and that the state does not exceed the bounds of what can be expected from a citizen. You and I, and so many others, will be the harvesters of the rich new country, rich in spirit, filled with light and truth. I am eager to live in this France, a France as ideal as we believe it can be, where the unjustness of class and privilege of birth is eradicated, where fair courts and laws bring sense and equality from the arbitrary whims of unfit monarchs, a country where virtue is celebrated and honesty replaces corruption. Please know that when I return, you, your family, and our community will know that I did my part to build this republic for us and our children and grandchildren. Yours, 
Henri. Well, that was the first bit of letters from Russia. There's about 14 of them, so we'll work through them over the next uh, many episodes. Now I'm going to follow that up with a bit of Tolstoy, well, from War and Peace. This is Book 10, Chapter 14, and we'll see how I do. Well, that's all, said Kazuzov, as he signed the last of the documents. And rising heavily and smoothing out the folds in his fat white neck, he moved toward the door with a more cheerful expression. The priest's wife, flushing rosy red, caught up the dish she had, after all, not managed to present at the right moment, though she had so long been preparing for it, and with a low bow, offered it to Kazuzov. He screwed up his eyes, smiled, lifted her chin with his hand, and said, Ah, what a beauty. Thank you, sweetheart. He took some gold pieces from his trouser pocket and put them on the dish for her. Well, my dear, and how are we getting on? He asked, moving to the door of the room assigned to him. The priest's wife smiled, and with dimples in her rosy cheeks, followed him into the room. The adjunct came out to the porch and asked Prince Andrei to lunch with him. Half an hour later, Prince Andrei was again called to Kazuzov. He found him reclining in an armchair, still in the same unbuttoned overcoat. He had in his hand a French book, which he closed as Prince Andrei entered, marking the place with a knife. Prince Andrei saw by the cover that it was Les Chevaliers by Signe de Bonhomme de Genlis. <laughs> well, sit down, sit down here, let's have a talk, said Kutuzov. It's sad, very sad, but remember, my dear fellow, that I'm a father to you, a second father. Prince Andrei told, told Kutuzov all he knew of his father's death and what he had seen in Bald Hills when he passed through it. What? What have they brought us to? Kutuzov suddenly cried in an agitated voice, evidently picturing vividly to himself from Prince Andrei's story the condition Russia was in. But give me time, give me time, he said with a grim look, evidently not wishing to continue this agitating conversation, and added, I sent for you to keep you with me. I thank your serene highness, but I fear I am no longer fit for the staff, replied Prince Andrei with a smile, which Kutuzov noticed. Kutuzov glanced inquiringly at him. But above all, added Prince Andrei, I've grown used to my regiment. I am fond, fond of the officers, and I fancy the men also like me. I should be sorry to leave the regiment if I decline the honor of being with you, believe me. A shrewd, kindly, yet subtly derisive expression lit up in Kutuzov's podgy face. He cut Balkonsky short. I am sorry, for I need you. But you're right, you're right. It's not here that the men are needed. Advisors are always plentiful, but men are not. The regiments would not be what they are if the would-be advisors served there as you do. I remember you at Austerlitz. I remember, yes, I remember you with the standard, said Kutuzov, and a flush of pleasure suffused Prince Andrei's face at this re recollection. Taking his hand and drawing him downwards, Kutuzov offered his cheek to be kissed, and again Prince Andrei noticed tears in the old man's eyes. Though Prince Andrei knew that Kutuzov's tears came easily, and that he was particularly tender to and compassionate of him from a wish to show sympathy with his loss, yet this reminder of Austerlitz was both pleasant and flattering to him. Go on your way, and God be with you. I know your path is the path of honor. He paused. I miss you at Bucharest, but I need someone to send. 
and changing the subject, Kutuzov began to speak of the Turkish war and the peace that had been concluded. Yes, I have been much blamed, he said, both for that war and the peace, but everything came at the right time. Tu viena pont a celui qui sans attendre, meaning everything comes in time to him who knows how to wait. And there were as many advisors there as there are here. He went on, returning to the subject of advisors, which evidently occupied him. Ah, those advisors, said he, if we had listened to them all, we should not have made peace with Turkey, and should not have been through with that war. Everything in haste, but more haste, less speed. Kamensky would have been lost if he had not died. He stormed fortresses with 30,000 men. It's not difficult to capture a fortress, but it's difficult to win a campaign. For that, not storming and attacking, but patience and time are wanted. Kamensky sent soldiers to Rushduck, but I only employed these two things, and took more fortresses than Kamensky, and made them but eat horse flesh. He swayed his head, and the French shall too, believe me. He went on, growing warmer and beating his chest. I'll make them eat horse flesh, and tears again dimmed his eyes. But shan't we have to accept battle, remarked Prince Andre? We shall if everybody wants it. It can't be helped. But believe me, my dear boy, there's nothing stronger than those two, patience and time. They will do it all. But the advisors don't see it that way. That's the trouble. Some want a thing, others don't. What's one to do? He asked, evidently expecting an answer. Well, what do you want us to do? He repeated, and his eyes shone with a deep, shrewd look. I'll tell you what to do, he continued, as Prince Andre still did not reply. I will tell you what to do, and what I want to do. When in doubt, my dear fellow, do nothing, he articulated in French. Well, goodbye, my dear fellow. Remember that with all my heart I share your sorrow, and that for you, I'm not a serene highness or a prince nor a commander-in-chief, but a father. If you want anything, Come straight to me. Goodbye, my dear boy. Again, he embraced and kissed Prince Andre, but before the latter had left the room, Kutuzov gave a sigh of relief and went on with his unfinished novel. Prince Andre could not have explained how or why it was, but after that interview with Kutuzov, he went back to his regiment reassured as to the general course of affairs and to the man to whom it had been entrusted. The more he realized the absence of all personal motive in that old man, in whom there seemed to remain only the habit of passions and in place of an intellect, grouping events and drawing conclusions, only the capacity calmly to contemplate the course of events. The more reassured he was that everything would be as it should. He will not bring any plan of his own. He will not devise or undertake anything, thought Prince Andre. But he will hear everything, remember everything, and put everything in its place. He will not hinder anything useful nor allow anything harmful. He understands that there is something stronger and more important than his own will, the inevitable course of events, and he can see them and grasp their significance, and seeing that significance can refrain from meddling and renounce his personal wish directed to something else. And above all, thought Prince Andre, one believes in him because he's Russian, despite the novel by Genlis and the French proverbs, and because his voice shook when he said, what they have brought to us, and had a sob in it when he said, he would make the meat horse flesh. Well, there's a wee snippet from one of the finest works of literature ever written in any language as far as I'm concerned. 
Wish I could do it a bit better justice, but it'll have to do. Hey, the last thing I'm going to go with today is a bit of poetry by Stefan Malm. She's <laughs> another heard name. Malarm. Anyway, this is a piece called Anguish. I come not to conquer your body tonight, O creature, in whom the sins of a nation stream, nor under the cureless tedium which my kisses pour to burrow a sad tempest in your impure hair. I ask of your bed the deep sleep with no dreams, flitting under unknown drapes remorse, which you, after the dark deceits, can enjoy. You who know more about oblivion than a corpse, for nine at my ingrained morality, vice has marked its sterility in me as in you, but while there exists in your breast of stone, a heart which the tooth of no crime can wound, haunted by my shroud I flee, wan, undone, in terror of dying, while sleeping alone. This next one is called Sigh. Towards your brow, where in autumn dreams, freckled with russet scatterings, calm sister, and towards the sky, wandering of your angelic eye, my soul ascends, thus white and true, within some melancholy garden, a fountain sighs towards the blue, towards October's softened blue, that pure and pale in the great pools, mirrors its endless lassitude, and on dead water where the leaves, wind strayed, in tawny anguish cleave, cold furrows, lets the yellow sun in one long lingering ray crawl. For the record, that first piece was translated by Kate Flores from French, the second also from French, of course. Frederick Morgan was a translator. The translation on the Tolstoy, I'm not sure who did it because I'm reading an online version rather than my beloved hardback edition. As for the music, the Tchaikovsky's 1812 is performed by the Kansai Student Band Federation with Toru Takahashi as the conductor. The other music there in the background, the spacey track, was a dude named Merlin from Vancouver, and I don't really know anything else about him at this juncture. And also the music that I've been playing the last couple days, some of it was me and, and uh, Garage Band, and the other pieces were Chris Sullivan, who's a wandering guitar player, probably living in Kentucky, and the other one was Chris Jacobson, also a wandering guitar slash ukulele player. Last I heard, uh, he was in Long Beach, but that's another story. Next episode of Postcards from Gravelly Beach, I think I'll continue on with the Uncle Weed saga and dig up some Ed Abbey, and I'll sign it off for today. And today's episode of Postcards from Gravelly Beach has been brought to you by the letter K, the word flummoxed, and the color dark, dark brown, the color of the Guinness in the cup before me. This is Devo, signing out from Oli. <laughs>